Okay, one minute past the hour. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining. Just a reminder, as I mentioned last week, in case you missed, we will be off next Saturday. So that is January 28th. We will take a break because Robert and I have conflicts, but we will be back as usual on February 4th, resuming at 8 p.m. Eastern, as always. Without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. All right. Let's get to the scripture. I'm going to play the rest of chapter 19. Oh, I have to. Whoops. Oh, oh, hold on. Hold on. (laughs) I accidentally muted you, Robert, and I meant to mute me. So let me fix that. You'll have to restart if you started playing the audio. Sorry about that. Here we go. (laughs) So they took Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place called the Place of the Skull, called in Aramaic, Golgotha. There they crucified him along with two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross, which read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Thus, many of the Jewish residents of Jerusalem read this notice, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the notice was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and made four shares, one for each soldier, and the tunic remained. Now the tunic was seamless, woven from top to bottom as a single piece. So the soldiers said to one another, Let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who will get it. This took place to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they threw dice. So the soldiers did these things. Now standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, look, here is your son. He then said to the disciple, Look, Here is your mother. From that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, realizing that by this time everything was completed, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop and lifted it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, It is completed. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Uh, Sorry, I misspoke earlier. We will not be finishing chapter 19 today. Um, As I always say, I try to go through the material as quickly as I can, but there really is a lot here, even if it doesn't seem like it at first. Now, of course, today we get to the actual crucifixion which is barely described at all in the gospel. If you've never read the gospels, that may surprise you. I will discuss more about that here in a little bit. But, you know, I think we have heard so much about Jesus on the cross that it's very difficult for us to have a fresh take on it, to really be surprised by it, be shocked, to be disgusted by it. You know, kind of the whole range of emotions that you would have if you were hearing about this for the first time. It's just part of our cultural DNA. You know, it's everywhere. It's in art. It's in movies. It's in conversation and sayings, you know. Hey, Robert, I hate hate to interrupt, but it sounds like your mic is kind of going in and out. I don't know if we can boost it a little Uh, bit or or maybe there's an auto on it. It's kind of, it's like some of your words are disappearing a little bit. I changed my settings. Let me go back to the other settings. Yeah. There, I bet that's better. Uh, Yeah, I'll let you go. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll say the word if, 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 if it sounds odd, but uh, sorry about the interruption. No, no, no. Thank you. I, I was trying to come up with better settings and I clearly failed at that. So, but this should work better. <laughs> um, okay. So um, what I was saying is, you know, this is just so common to us that we really don't ever uh, feel surprised by it. Well, There is a great book that was published fairly recently called Dominion by Tom Holland. Now, Tom Holland is a historian. I'm, of course, not talking about the kid who played Spider-Man in the Marvel movies, although that's probably who everybody thinks of. Uh, I've quoted him before throughout this study. 
And in the preface to the book Dominion, he talks about crucifixion in just kind of the most um, amazing way, if that makes any sense, that I've ever read. So I'm going to read maybe three paragraphs. I'm not going to read everything that's in the blog, but if you are into this, go go read over there. But I just want to kind of set the stage for what is going on. Um, I had pre-recorded this, but my recording is way too long. So, okay, here I go. Just bear with me as I read a couple of paragraphs. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This, in turn, was what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. Lacking such a sanction, the entire order of the city might fall apart. Luxury and splendor such as Rome could boast were dependent in the final reckoning on keeping those who sustained it in their place. After all, we have slaves drawn from every corner of the world in our households, practicing strange customs and foreign cults, or none, and it is only by means of terror that we can hope to coerce such scum. Nevertheless, while the salutary effect of crucifixion on those who might otherwise threaten the order of the state was taken for granted, Roman attitudes to the punishment were shot through with ambivalence. Naturally, if it were to serve as a deterrent, it needed to be public. Nothing spoke more eloquently of a failed revolt than the sight of hundreds upon hundreds of corpse-hung crosses, whether lining a highway or else massed before a rebellious city, the hills all around it stripped bare of their trees. Even in peacetime, executioners would make a spectacle of their victims by suspending them in a variety of inventive ways. One, perhaps upside down, with his head towards the ground. Another with a stake driven through his genitals. Another attached by his arms to a yoke. Yet in the exposure of the crucified to the public gaze, there lurked a paradox. So foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. The Romans, for all that they had adopted the punishment as a supreme penalty, refused to countenance the possibility that it might have originated with them. Only a people famed for their barbarousness and cruelty could ever have devised such a torture. The Persians, perhaps, or the Assyrians, or the Gauls. Everything about the practice of nailing a man to a cross, a crux, was repellent. Why, the very word is harsh on our ears. It was this disgust that crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why, when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls, and why, when Rome burst its ancient limits, only the planting of the world's most exotic and aromatic plants could serve to mass the taint. It was also why, despite the ubiquity of crucifixion across the Roman world, few cared to think much about it. Order the order loved by the gods and upheld by the magistrates vested with the full authority of the greatest power on earth was what counted, not the elimination of such vermin as presumed to challenge it. Criminals broken on implements of torture who were such filth to concern men of breeding and civility. Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it was best to draw a veil across them entirely. The surprise then is less that we should have so few detailed descriptions in ancient literature of what a crucifixion might actually involve than that we should have any at all. And then the book continues to say how surprising it is that we have these very early accounts, four early accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus and how surprising, even offensive, is that a man who was crucified would be considered a god, that he would be praised. Again, if if you're interested, read at least what I put on the blog. It is spectacular. But those themes that I read about will definitely come through in today's Bible study. This idea that this was considered by everyone to just be a gruesome way to die, uh, that these deaths would occur outside the city, uh, that generally people did not want to talk about them. And that, that will explain again why the description in the gospel of the crucifixion is is one sentence really half of a sentence. Um, So with that in mind, let's get to today's text. Um, First, or today's text opens with the idea that Jesus carried his own cross to Golgotha. So as I just said, the crucifixions would never happen inside the city. They would happen outside in just kind of the ugliest, 
most worthless stretch of land that you might have um, because nobody wanted to taint good land with such a gruesome crucifixion. Um, now, traditionally, the one convicted to death would only carry one of the beams, the cross beam, essentially, not the one that is in the ground facing upwards, but the, the one that then would, you know, create a right angle with that post. So although in art and in pictures, we normally picture Jesus carrying the entire cross, that's probably not the case. He was probably only carrying the one beam, and that's what they called carrying the cross. I mean, there's no deception in there. We just misunderstand it now as a modern audience. Um, now, another thing that that might surprise you if you've read the other Gospels is that in the other Gospels, we're told that the Romans uh, conscript another person uh, by the name of Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus. And these are really not contradictory accounts. We can understand what went on here. Jesus had been brutally scourged, and now he has to carry the cross, and he's physically unable to. So what is probably being described here when you put all the Gospels together is Jesus begins to carry the cross, again, the one beam of the cross, and he just can't make it. He might die along the way, and... Keep in mind, this is supposed to be a spectacle. You know, the, the prisoner is supposed to be crucified in front of everyone. So, there. I mean, if the prisoner dies on the way to the cross, that would be a waste from the Roman perspective. So, they get somebody else to help. Again, that information is not in this gospel, but I tried to put kind of the story together, all the events that went on. Um, tradition also would be that as the prisoner carries the cross, he would he would continue to be beaten and scourged. Uh, that probably didn't happen in, in the case of Jesus, just because he was clearly in such bad shape as it is. So he probably would have died on the way. Um, now, where is Golgotha? Um, it, it is, you know, probably right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem, uh, where the Church of the Holy Holy Sepulchre, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is now. That is a, a Catholic church that tradition says it is in the place, or at least very near the place where Jesus was crucified and then uh, over the place where Jesus was buried. Um, that tradition seems to be accurate. And, and not, I'm not just taking that on faith. I mean, you really, when you look at the historicity of all this, the church is located at about the right location. Um, there is another location that sometimes Protestants consider very, um, very relevant called the Garden Tomb. And the Garden Tomb is almost certainly not in the correct location of where the tomb would be. And in the story, we're told that the tomb is very close to where Jesus was crucified. So that's why I'm treating them as one location, because they're nearby. Um, Golgotha was also, uh, it also went by the name, the place of the skull. Um, of course, this could be for two reasons. Maybe the terrain kind of resembled a skull for some reason, but the more likely explanation is that it was called that because that's where many people were killed. Um, and, you know, well, it the connection is obvious. The reason I mentioned that last little bit is because you might be wondering, why do we use the word Calvary, right? If you've probably heard this term, if you've ever been to church, especially around, you know, Easter time or whatever, uh, Jesus going to Calvary. Well, the word for skull, right, which was originally in Greek, when it's translated to Latin, it is the word, essentially the word cranium. And then that word was transliterated into English, not translated, but transliteration is when you take the word from another language and you just kind of use it in your own language. You might modify it slightly. And that's why you go from cranium to calvary. Um, and so Calvary is a transliteration of skull. So there you go. Um, well, whenever, um, Jesus gets there to the place where he will be crucified, he is crucified along two others. This, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit surprising, um, because you might be thinking, well, these two other people have not been 
mentioned before in this story, and it's because they really have nothing to do with the story. Um, crucifixions were supposed to be public spectacles, so the more the merrier. Um, and, you know, what better time to have, uh, you know, multiple crucifixions than during the biggest holiday of the year, this holiday, the Passover, would bring Jews from all, all over the world, but also Gentiles. There would be quite a few Gentiles that would go. Um, and so, the you know, you have the audience. You have an audience that's going to go back to their homes and tell everyone, you will not believe what I just saw. Um, so, great time. And I'm sorry to say this so lightly. I don't. I don't mean to make fun, but it. But from a practical standpoint, this is a great time to have a crucifixion. Um, again, I. I don't say that lightly. Just if I. That's how a Roman would have thought of it. Let's let's just put it that way. Um. So, that's you know that's what's going on, there. Um. In a crucifixion. Sometimes the prisoner would be tied to the cross and other times it would be nailed to the cross. If they were nailed to the cross, the nails would be five to seven inches. Uh, they would they would go generally through the wrist and then go deep into the wood of the cross. So it would hold them. Um, we normally uh, picture Jesus as having the, the holes kind of in the middle of his hands. And they were probably closer to the wrist to where we could very much still say that the holes are in his hands, but just not that center of them, a little closer to the wrist, um, because that would that would hold the prisoner. Um, you know, the, the person would be covered in wounds from uh, the lashes that he received um, and the beating and all that. He wouldn't be able to swat the flies or the birds that would be getting to him. Um, and the person would normally hang there for hours, if not days. It was not unusual for a crucifixion to take days. And the prisoner eventually would become exhausted and not be able to hold up his weight. It would suffocate. Or, of course, they could die from losing too much blood, um, you know, just from the other injuries. So they could have died from a number of things, but, but generally they would reach that point of utter exhaustion. Um, and then die. Um, and th that will be relevant here in a little bit. Well, the other thing that we see here is that there's a tablet, right? And this tablet says King of the Jews, and it is written in three languages, Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews, and then Latin and Greek. Of course, Greek was the lingua franca, right? That was the language that was spoken, quote unquote, all over the world, what they would have considered all over the world, with Latin being a close second. Um, you know, particularly the, in the Western half, you would have had more Latin speakers and in the Eastern half, you would have had more Greek speakers of the empire. I mean, when I say halves, um, well, um, not that at the time the empire was split in halves. That's not what I mean. Uh, I just mean geographically. Okay. At any rate, um, there, this is, this has a lot of dark humor, um, what's going on here, because Pilate, he just writes King of the Jews and puts it on the cross. And so picture the scene from somebody, from the eyes of somebody who's not in the know, right? They don't know everything that we know as the readers of the gospel. They just see a guy that is being horrifically beaten and tortured and then crucified in the charge against them is king of the Jews. Now, to have a tablet with the charge for which the prisoner is being killed was fairly standard. It didn't always happen, especially if you're crucifying a bunch of people at once, uh, but it was somewhat standard. Um, and, and as the king of the Jews is being crucified, you have a bunch of Jews, especially the Jewish elite, who are happy they're celebrating this they're asking for this right they're cheering this on and so if you were a jew who just traveled from somewhere else you know in the roman or greek world you'd be looking at this with utter confusion why are the jews celebrating that one of their own is it is being killed uh so it makes sense that that the the jewish elite they go hey that that tablet needs to be rewritten it has to say he claims to be 
picking of the Jews, right? And I, I paraphrase slightly, but that's what they're saying. It's like, no, 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 we need to clarify this. And you can't help but kind of laugh a little at Pilate's just wicked, you know, last laugh um, where he goes, nope, what I've written, I've read, uh, what I have written, I have written. Essentially, I'm not going to make any changes. Uh, you know, the the Jewish elite got him involved in a situation he wanted nothing to do with. Then they twist his arm by saying, if you don't do as we say, we will tell on you to the emperor, to Caesar. Um, so, fine. He gets them back with this little thing. Now, the, the beauty behind this just horrifically dark situation is that it ends up making a sort of theological point. Jesus is, he goes to the cross with this tablet that seems very serious, saying he is the king of the Jews, right? And as the audience, we recognize, yes, that charge, that title is in fact correct. And not only that, it's written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And so the whole world, quote unquote, symbolically speaking, can see that, can see that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. Um. And this is very reminiscent of um, what Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John, if you go back to chapter 12, where he said, when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, right? We see that going on here symbolically. Um, and it just shows how kind of God works this story out. Even through everybody's evil actions, it ends up still communicating the point that it needs to communicate. It also shows that Jesus did not just die for the Jews, but for the whole world. As 3.16 says, you know, Jesus died so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Um, then, as Jesus is crucified, and excuse me one second, I have dogs, and I don't know. Okay, sorry about that. Okay. Um, and... One of the things I was going to point out, and this is why I read that that quotation from Tom Holland in the beginning, is that notice that the gospel doesn't really describe the crucifixion. The, the other gospels, the synoptics, give us a few. They give us a few more details, but very few. This is not the kind of thing anyone wanted to talk about, particularly if it's someone you love who's being crucified or someone you admire, much less your Lord, you know. Um, so... Yeah, the, the Gospels are very shy about it, uh, which I think it can be shocking, right? Since the crucifixion is so central to Christianity, you might expect like pages and pages and pages on it. And that's not the case. There's at best one sentence, and he was crucified along two others, period. Um, and, um, well, and now we are going to get into fulfilled prophecy. And this is where today's Bible study is going to seem to just go off the rails. Um, but bear with me that a lot of the theology of the cross is actually found in the Old Testament references, right? And, and you'll see what I mean here in a minute. Uh, when Jesus is crucified, the Roman soldiers, they, uh, they cast lots or throw dice for his clothing, for his shirt. Um, this was very standard, um, just so we kind of have the right uh, setting in mind. The basic Roman unit was a contubernium, and it had eight soldiers. And then for a, a task such as a crucifixion, you would probably just dispatch half the unit, four men, and that was a quaternion. Um, that's what we have here, right? We have half of a unit, so four soldiers, uh, carrying out this crucifixion, and they're dividing the possessions of the ones who are crucified. Also very standard, whenever somebody was executed, his possessions would be confiscated. Of course, at the time that Jesus was arrested, all he had with him was, the, you know, the shirt on his back, so to speak. So that's all that they have uh, to divide among themselves. Um, when the text says that they threw dice, there is this, well, let me, let me say this. That is what a modern translation says. Older translations would say cast lots. Uh, essentially, they played a game of chance to see who wins the shirt. Um, 
it's possible that they would have used actual dice, but that's not really why the modern translations say through dice. They're just trying to convey this idea of a game of chance in a way that makes sense to us. But literally, it is to choose by lot. Um, this could have been even playing like, you know, the game where you draw the shortest stick or something like that. Um, so the the soldiers do that. They they are drawing um, lots to see who wins the shirt. And here's where, it, it, you know, the Gospel of John tells us that prophecy is being fulfilled. And this really is important. I mean, it's so easy to just gloss over this. Um, but we need to stop and think what prophecy, what, or, you know, what, what scripture is being fulfilled here? And if we don't do this, we really are going to miss the, the significance of, of the crucifixion or a lot of it. Well, that little piece about casting lots for the shirt, it is referencing Psalm 22. Okay. And Psalm 22 is kind of lengthy. I quoted at length in the blog, and I do want to read at least maybe half of it so we all understand what is the setting here going on. Now, mind you, this was a psalm that was written by David. That's kind of the best king that uh, Israel had. Think of their golden age. Now, the story of David, of course, I can get into it here, but it definitely had its ups and downs. And... Um, before he became king, he encountered a lot of opposition. Okay, so David is writing as David, but it was clear even to the Jews at the time that this psalm was prophetic, that although David wrote it talking about himself, it would apply, it would have a bigger fulfillment. It would apply to the Messiah to come. Um, okay, so if I, uh, again, I'm just going to read a few verses so we kind of get the picture. It says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. You are holy. You sit as king, receiving the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you and you rescued them. To you, they cried out and they were saved. In you, they trusted and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. People insult me and despise me. All who see me taunt me. They mock me and shake their heads. They say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, for he delights in him. Yes, you are the one who brought me out of the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breast. I have been dependent on you since birth. From the time I came out of my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not remain far away from me, for trouble is near and I have no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, powerful bulls of Bashan Hemian. They open their mouth to devour me like a roaring lion that rips its prey. My strength drains away like water. All my bones are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It melts away inside me. The roof of my mouth is as dry as a piece of pottery. Um, that Just keep that reference in mind, this idea of the roof of my mouth is as dry as a piece of pottery. But forgive me, let me, let me continue reading. You said me in the dust of death. Yes, while dogs surround me, a gang of evil men crowd around me like a lion. They pin my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They're dividing up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my garments. Right? Literally the, what we just read in, in John. And what that psalm says, when that psalm is translated as rolling dice, it's also, quote, casting lots. And let me read the ending of this. Um... But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild ox. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. Your loyal followers of the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, stand in awe of him. For he did not despise or detest the suffering of the oppressed. He did not ignore him when he cried out, to him, he responded. Um, okay. And I'm, I left maybe the last like four or five verses out that, that you can go read. But what is the picture here being painted? And now I, I have to say this, and I'm sure that this is not going to be very satisfying for people, but the way that Israelites understood the fulfillment of prophecy is not quite 
as kind of mechanical, as square as we would like it to be as modern audiences, right? We very much want like a very specific prediction that was fulfilled exactly like we said, so we can match it up one for one and and that's that. Well, they really thought more in terms of themes. Now, which is not to say that there are no details, like there is this detail of the clothes being divided, which is very clearly fulfilled explicitly. So I'm not denying that. But when we go back and read the Psalms, we have to think, okay, what are the motifs here that that I should be pulling out that are being applied to Jesus? And you see the idea of the suffering servant who is suffering, why? Because of his dedication to God, right? So it's, a, it's somebody who is suffering because he is dedicated to God, which is very much what we see with Christ. Now, the difference is that Christ is not asked for help for himself, right? In the sense that he does not say, he, Christ could have avoided this, but he does not, right? He does, he, he does not want God to really spare this punishment um, or this pain uh, from him. But what, how does the psalm end up that the people of God will rejoice because of this, right? God will come to the rescue. Um, and so we, we're going to see that as, as the, the text progresses, that this sacrifice will bring blessings, will, will bring salvation to the people of God. Then we get into this scene that... It's going to seem awkward to us, again, as modern readers, as a modern audience, where Jesus um, kind of, if I want to say it, like they pawns off his mother to one of his disciples. And, and let me explain this because it really is very important. At, in their culture, women participated in society through a man in their lives, okay? Women were connected to a household because the household was the basic unit. And household was more than just immediate family. It would include extended family, which they would just view as family. Their language did not even have a word for extended family. It was just family. Um, but a woman would be part of a household because she was either the daughter of a man or she was the wife of a man or she was the mother of a man. But if a woman had either no father, no husband, and no son, she was not part of the household. She would be left effectively destitute. Um, and um, it was the responsibility of, of the sons to take care of their mother, particularly the eldest son. Now, Jesus, of course, was the eldest. And if you take the Catholic interpretation, then he was the only son of Mary, um, which again, we're not going to get into that today. We can all agree. Jesus had to take care of his mom. So he says to her, uh, you know, look at this disciple. He's now your son and looks at the disciple and says, she is now your mother. In other words, now you beloved disciple, who's probably John, you must take care of her like if she was your own mother. Um, this would not have been awkward at the time. Um, we actually have quite a few stories, uh, most of them from the Greek and Roman world, where somebody, essentially somebody who was about to die would turn to a friend and say, now my mother is your mother, take care of her. Uh, so people would have been familiar with this. And this kind of adoptive relationship where a man would adopt a woman as his mother uh, would have been honored. It was a very serious promise. Now, why am I spending some time on this? Part of it is because I'm always, I always want to explain the historical background of, of what's going on in the text, but also because there is actually this kind of the, this model for future believers. If you guys remember the verse we discussed, you know, about hating mother and father and brother and sister and all that, what that, what that verse mostly is talking about, right, is the fact that following Jesus could create a problem with your family to the point that your family may disown you. And here we see that Jesus did not request that one of his brothers, real brothers, even if Again, under the Catholic interpretation, they'd be half-brothers. But at any rate, he did not ask any of his blood relatives to 
take care of his mother, he has to ask one of his disciples, right? Somebody from his faith family, not his quote-unquote real family. Um, and this will become a model uh, or an inspiration for, for many, many believers uh, throughout the ages, including today. I mean, if you live in a Muslim nation and you become a Christian, your family will disown you. Uh, and you would be in this very situation. Your family would become uh, your church. Uh, and that's that's all you would have. Um, so it is a very touching scene that if we don't understand that, we may just kind of skip it, you know, gloss over it and, and move on. Um, okay. And then, and this is the last thing that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about because of time, everything else I can leave for next time. But then Jesus says, I am thirsty. And again, we are told, well, and he was given um, vinegar to drink. And again, we're told that prophecy is being fulfilled or that the scripture is being fulfilled. Now, this one is a little bit trickier. What scripture is being referenced here? And there's two options, and it's really only the two. Everyone agrees that it's one or the other or both. Um, you could have Psalm 22, which I just read, or it could be Psalm 69. Now, Psalm 69 is very similar in theme to Psalm 22 with one, I would say, important distinction. Uh, which I'll get to in a second. Now, um, let me give you the two arguments uh, very briefly. Psalm 22 has been referenced before in the Gospel of John, and it actually will be referenced again. So it makes sense that we're sticking just with the same psalm. Um, so that would be the argument that this idea, the, the, the thirst and the, the vinegar and all that refers to Psalm 22. However, when you read the equivalent passage in the Gospel of Matthew to describe the wine um, being given to Jesus, the vinegar being given to him, um, it, he uses a word in Greek that I suppose is pronounced cholen. Um, and that is the exact same word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that people had available at the time, uses twice in Psalm 69. Um, and that word is not used in Psalm 22. Now you might be thinking, uh, who cares? Matthew probably just used that word because it properly described the drink. But the argument really becomes more powerful when you realize that Matthew was uh, pulling from Mark, from the Gospel of Mark, and Mark uses a different word to describe that drink. Okay, uh, he uses the word for myrrh. Um, so Matthew deliberately changes the word to the same Greek word used in Psalm 69. I think it's a very powerful argument that the reference here is to Psalm 69. But again, you guys can make up your own mind. And <laughs> for all I know, you don't really care about this. But um, Psalm 69, if I had more time, I would also read it. Um, I, I do post it in, on its entirety in the blog, um, but it has the same idea of this, this suffering servant who everybody has turned against him and he is suffering because he is serving God. He's doing the right thing. Um, and then it, in verse 21, just so you, you know, it says, they put bitter poison into my food and to quench my thirst, they give me vinegar to drink. The same thing that you see in the Gospel of John. Now, the ending of the psalm is actually very different. There is judgment on the people who oppose God. Okay, so I think if you if you bring in Psalm twenty two and Psalm sixty nine, the picture that you get is of the suffering servant who suffers for his devotion to God, and then the people of God, which we know from the Gospel of John, is those who believe in Him, are blessed and saved through this sacrifice and the people who oppose God are judged. Um, and that's what we get out of Psalm 69. It's, it's actually kind of terrifying when you read it in its entirety. Um, and I'm going to stop there. There's a little, there's one more thing I had in the blog, but I can open it up for questions. I'm, I'm sorry that I've taken up so much time in the last two sessions. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, as usual, guys, if you'd like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, just type the word question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and I'll be happy to bring it in. 
as far as my thoughts, um, I know you, you mentioned that there's really not much significant about the other two crucified, or uh, I actually think it's interesting that the crucifixion itself is much less detailed in its description than I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> is there anything, do we have, do we know anything about these other two as in what sort of crimes would they have committed if we have any indicators and is the number three itself significant or was it just, or was it simply that there were just like two other guys and that was it? Did they pick two from say 10 eligible or was it just, these are the two guys, you're the three, go ahead. Do we have any clues on that? Um, History would, would give us some clues, not so much the text. Now, the other Gospels do have a brief conversation between Jesus and the other two. Um, as At first, they're mocking him, and then one of them actually accepts him as a savior on the cross, and they have a very interesting exchange there. Um, that's not in the Gospel of John, which is why I, I didn't go into it. Um, to my knowledge, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it says anywhere what it is that they did, but generally the people who were crucified would have been people who rebelled against Rome, just like Jesus was accused of doing. Hmm. Um, so it's very likely that they were also revolutionaries of some kind. And that's a very broad term. I mean, who knows what they did to earn that title? Uh, you know, they could have insulted the Caesar. They could have refused to kneel before him. They could have actually said something inappropriate. Um, Who's to say? To my knowledge, there's no more information than that. But again, somebody remind me if I'm forgetting. And we have no information about how they may have been selected or if they even were selected. They just, Correct. yeah. Um, like from yeah, a, let's I, say you have a group of eligible prisoners eligible for execution. We don't even know if, if they, I guess what I'm no. saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think you would, you get, you get what I'm saying. It's not just that they were, convicted of crimes it's if you have a pool of criminals eligible for execution were these guys selected from that pool or were they just guys ah well i suppose both are possibilities we're really not told but given the festival i think it's safe to assume they would have crucified all the people they could because again the crucifixions were government propaganda they they very much serve that deterrent purpose um and but it doesn't really tell us it, it they were probably crucifying all the revolutionaries they had available at the time, but I, you know, I'm just speculating there. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and I don't see requests to speak. So uh, again, if, um, if everyone wants to be quiet tonight, that's perfectly fine, but I'll just remind everyone you're welcome to join if you'd like, but I, uh, I don't know. I just, just from uh, the, the outsider layman perspective, someone without, a lot of, of biblical knowledge, obviously, which is why I'm participating. I just, I find it shocking the lack of specifics on the main point of the story, really the, the climax of the story. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I guess I, I expected a, a bigger spectacle, yes. um, but I don't, we have people requesting to, uh, to ask questions or comments. So I don't know if you had any more thoughts about that, but we can bring people in if you're ready. No. Yeah. Let's, um, let's let them talk. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, thanks again for the um, for the great lesson and also for the opportunity to ask a question. Uh, Robert, do you happen to know uh, when Psalm 22 was written? I mean, I know it's ancient, and I, I guess my point is that I don't think even like a like a, a skeptic would take issue with the fact that Psalm 22, just archaeologically predates the crucifixion by like a long, long time. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, there's some, I could be mistaken. So if I am, somebody correct me, but I think um, David reigned at about a thousand, uh, you know, a thousand years before Christ. Um, and, and I don't really think anybody disputes that he wrote it or somebody at the time anyways, wrote it. Um so yeah, I mean the the psalm predates the crucifixion by a thousand years, give or take a few years. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Denby, go ahead if you're ready. Uh, yeah, just um, about what you're 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 surprised about the the lack of description of crucifixion. Yeah, I think um, Robert kind of covered that in his blog. Was it's uh, such an ignominious punishment? And 
the Romans didn't even want to think about it more than they had to. Um, and so, like, I remember um, uh, Tom Holland, Tom Holland, on his uh, excellent history podcast called "The Rest of, Rest of History," said that there are there there are about um, seven crucifixion nails left in existence, and that's because they would melt them down and make them to something else because, you know, it was such a unpleasant thing. People didn't want to be reminded of it. And so like we we're we're looking at this from a perspective of of uh eventually we we decided there was a noble thing that Jesus did. But up till him it was ignominious and shameful and you know not something you would want to remember and, and uh as Robert mentioned in the early in, in the blog, uh, for a long time, Christians didn't depict the cross. They didn't depict the crucifixion. It was too, you know, it, it was still freighted with the baggage that it had bef- before. You know, it was so, you know, they hadn't yet gotten over the 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 image of shame that it, it carried for so long. And, you know, so like the when the Gospels were written, that was still in their minds. Like, I think, I think Robert, if I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that they um, they might uh, put kind of a hint of a of like a cross at the top of some document or something. But otherwise, it, they didn't they didn't show it, mm-hmm. you know, certainly not in any detail. It was it was, you know, hundreds of years before people started to depict it. So. Um, you know, now this is a symbol of Jesus' victory for us over death. But you know, uh, up to and including you know, up to and including the time of his crucifixion, that was not the case. It was the worst punishment, the most humiliating punishment possible, and not even the Romans wanted to think about it after they'd done it. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. hopefully that kind of covers. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, it's gets good context. Thank you for the thoughts, Robert. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, uh, but that was exactly right. Like you said, it was. I mean, it took like four hundred years before we started really depicting the cross. And if you read the letters of Paul, you know, I know there's there's many Christians in the in this Bible study, and and so I, I'm sure there's many people here who've read the letters of Paul when he says the cross is foolishness to the world. Uh, I think we. We take that statement as being merely theology, and I'm not saying there's no theology in it, but Paul really is speaking in a very practical way as well. Like at the time to say to somebody, hey, my, the Lord was this man who was crucified. I mean, it would be beyond foolish. It'd be grotesque. Uh, and so, yeah, it's the kind of thing that even in the Gospels, I mean, they're going to record it, but they don't want to go into any details. Are the the rest of the gospels are consistent in this way? They just kind of give you a then he got crucified, moving on sort of characterization. Yeah, they they have a a few more sentences because they describe the nails. I don't think that John describes even the nails. It's like extremely brief. Uh, so the other ones do give us a tiny bit more information, but instead of one sentence, it's like three sentences, hmm. <laughs> not not much more. Um. We don't have additional requests to speak for now. So, oh, uh, Donald May, maybe I missed him. Donald, I'm sorry yeah, if I, I missed you, but if you're ready, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, would it be fair, uh, Robert, and to Matt's point, to say that really John is putting his weight on, as far as the crucifixion goes and things surrounding it, is he's putting his weight on this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. In other words, he's underscoring Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. So, yeah, I I fully agree. Which is why I actually took the time, you know, to re to at least read Psalm twenty two, and um, here, if we have a, a minute, then I'll I'm going to read another passage from the Old Testament. I just kind of as a personal side note. One of the best practices I've ever implemented in my study of the Bible is when the New Testament refers to the Old Testament, I actually stop, I pull up the passage, and I read it. And I read it in its entirety, like the whole context. Um, Otherwise, you miss the point that the author is trying to make. Uh, You know, it's like 
I don't know. Let's say that you've read all of the all of Tolkien's work and you see from the Silmarillion, like if you've read the Silmarillion, then when you're reading the other books, you're like, oh, I get this because this relates to this other story. Well, the same with the Bible. If if you don't go back and read the Old Testament, you're just going to miss what the author is saying in the New Testament. All right. Uh, thanks, Donald. And I think we're we're caught up on requests to speak. So I don't know if you had um, other thoughts that you wanted to discuss, Robert. Or yeah, um, I have one one last piece of the of my blog that I I think I can get to it now. It's not all that lengthy. Um, the last verse that I was going to cover today is verse thirty, and it talks about Jesus giving up His Spirit, and He says it is completed. In, in this, there's so much here that I'm glad we have at least a few minutes to discuss it. Let me begin with this idea of he gave up his spirit. This is the culmination of a theme that John has been kind of beating us up over the head with, which is Jesus is in control, right? Jesus is in control. He could have, Jesus could have said no to all this. He could have done otherwise. Pilate was not in ultimate control. Um, Nobody was, right? It was him. And so John describes Jesus not merely as dying, but as he gave up his spirit. It is an action that Jesus does. So even at even up to the moment of death, it is Jesus doing this willingly. Um, and, and I think that's a very important theme in the Gospel of John and also something that is quite beautiful and powerful. And then Jesus also says it is completed. Now, what is completed? Right. That, that's kind of a million dollar question. Um, we know that that Jesus early ministry or earthly ministry is what I meant to say is done. Um, so, you know, what's what's going on here? Well, I think to understand this, we need to catch another another reference that is built into verse 30, which is that when Jesus gives up his spirit, the word being used being used there is identical to the word being used in Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 has been referenced before in the Gospel of John. So I'm not here making any crazy inferences. Uh, Isaiah 53 is applied to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And here, if, if we spoke Greek, we would catch the reference again. And I would love to read this since we have a, you know, a couple of minutes, uh, because th this is a key passage to understanding all this. Again, this is Isaiah 53, and it is very brief. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his path. But the Lord caused the sin of all, sorry, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial. But who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. 
so I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. Okay. I I hope that this gives everyone pause, you know, just how accurately Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus. We have very specific things here, like, for example, the fact that he was punished with other criminals. He was, they intended to bury him with criminals, but then he ended up in a rich man's tomb, which we're going to see just later in, in chapter 19. I just won't be able to get to it today. But there are very specific things here that apply to Jesus. This, um, in fact, Isaiah 53 is so powerful that Christians who do ministry among Jews, by Jews I mean like who actually subscribe to Judaism, this is the go-to passage, right? Um, and not to get into the weeds here, but Jews today who do not accept Christ, they're actually still looking for a Messiah who will fulfill Isaiah 53. Um, they just don't think that Jesus was it. So it is incredibly powerful, and it gives us the purpose of the crucifixion. That given that we only have a couple of minutes, I, you know, I won't go into it at length. I will do that next time. But why is the suffering servant, as this is called, suffering? He's suffering for the sins of many, right? He he's suffering um, so that those sins may be forgiven and that all of his people can rejoice and benefit from this. It, this is the crux of the gospel, right? No pun intended. Um, this is the center of it. And, I, and again, I will go more into this next time, but the idea that Jesus died um, carrying the faults of other people. And does that even make sense? You know, that's a question that I, I, I've been dying to address, but it, it has to happen next time. <laughs> but in the few minutes that I have left, Matt, do you have any comments or does anybody else have a question? Uh, um, no, I don't necessarily have anything immediately on my mind, but I welcome commentary from uh, others. Uh, oh, sorry, I said next week. I'm, forgive me. I see that in the chat. I'm sorry. Matt. Right. Yeah. So uh, on February 4th, thanks for clarification, not uh, next session, which is yes. two weeks from today. Yes. Um, but yeah, we do have a couple minutes left, guys. If you'd like to get in a quick final thought, you're welcome to do that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still processing everything you're saying because the context of the crucifixion as contextualized in the Old Testament, that's layering one text I'm barely familiar with with another text I'm not at all familiar with. So I understand the broad concept of what you're saying, but as far as the details here, that's a lot to take in for just, uh, or on a, you know, in the moment, um, we do have a question in the chat. When was Isaiah written? Do you know the I'm answer to gonna, that? I'm going to Google that. Uh, approximately 700 BC. Okay. It's what the Googles tell me. I have not looked into that at length, but it's probably correct. Denby has another comment. Denby, go ahead if you're ready. Yeah, just a quick one, which is, um, again, about the, like, the, the way we view the cross now compared to what it was, which in... One uh, thing I learned is that there's a there's a cross in the Colosseum, but it wasn't there for worship. It was there for to be used as an instrument of torture. Hmm. You know, and nowadays people would see it and they're like, oh, maybe they use the Colosseum as the church. I'm like, no, no. They just tortured people. That's there. it's still uh, it still exists today, authentic to the era, or is it? Uh, uh, you're talking about something that we know existed historically. I, uh, yeah, yeah. It may it may be you know, it may be just put in there to represent history, but ah, it's not there okay. as a Christian cross. It's to it's as what it once was as an mm -hmm. instrument of torture, you know. And um, you know, like again, like why why would not people not want to talk about crucifixion? It was just you can just look at our word excruciating. Like that's you know, uh, they, they say that they share the same sort of uh, linguistic origin. You're saying, yeah, yeah, it comes yeah. from from the from crucifixion. Hmm. You know, we we all understand to mean unbearable pain hmm. and torment. Anyway, just thought maybe that was worth having. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the relationship between those words. Uh, Robert, do you have any thoughts on that? No, honestly, I 
didn't realize they shared an etymology either. Um, but yeah, but no, thank you for that comment. Again, I, it's so difficult for us to think of the cross in its original sense. And that's why I bring in, you know, the stuff from Tom Holland and all this, like I'm trying to put us in that time and place. Uh, but it, it's just rough because we're so used to that symbol as a symbol of hope. Um, in life and and that's not what they would have thought so yeah, yeah that is exactly right well thanks for the context on that as again as someone who's not entirely familiar with all all of these concepts it is interesting to me how that how the interpretation of that symbol has changed so drastically indeed probably even reversed in many ways uh so that's that's interesting to learn um appreciate that we are uh past the top of the hour. So we are officially over time. Did you have any thoughts before we're finished up, Robert? And thank you, Denby, by the way. Uh, no, uh, that was it. So I look forward to seeing y'all two weeks from now. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in tonight, guys. Thanks for joining and participating as always. As a reminder, if you missed any part of the study and you'd like to listen back, uh, you can do that through the Bible study page of the website. If you need to get in touch with Robert or do anything else Bible study related, that's also how you do it. It's linked on the homepage, mattchristiansonmedia.com. We will be off next week, as I mentioned. So we will return on Saturday, February 4th at usual time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, have a great uh, couple of weeks.